Uh, as Charles said, I'll be preaching this morning, so you get me for the whole service. Um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but we'll see. I preached about a month ago, and I, I started, uh, I did a sermon on uh, bringing out some metaphors that we use for God and just seeing how sometimes the language we use can actually be uh, more problematic than useful. Um, language is necessary when we try to talk about God. Obviously, we have to use words. Uh, but there are better words than others, I feel. And I started that sermon um, a month ago, wanting to kind of continue that into uh, future sermons. Originally, this was going to be one of them. And I want to just say that I'm going to pause on that. I think I, I want to come back to that idea of using, of, or looking at these metaphors for God when we get into Lent, centered around kind of looking at the cross how I think that there's some metaphors that are better than others when we talk about God. But this morning, I, I wanted to just stay in this current sermon series that Charles has started talking about what is the good news and what makes the good news good. Um, and I, I wanted to add my voice to that. And so if you will allow me, I'm going to backtrack on what I said before that I will not be preaching about metaphors this morning. But good news is actually, or I'm sorry, the term gospel is actually a military term. It's an announcement of victory and kind of the beginning of a new reign used in the context of battle and war. So if we as Christians are to be sharing the good news, I think it's really important as this sermon series has been trying to discover uh, to figure out what is the message of this good news? What does this new reign look like? And is it truly good news for everybody? This week I've been thinking about spiritual pilgrimages. There's a picture here. Yeah, spiritual pilgrimages. Did you know that the practice of making religious pilgrimages is a multi-billion dollar industry? Each year, people flock to shrines and religious sites from all over the world. This business is also called religious tourism or spiritual tourism. In fact, it's the oldest form of tourism that we have. It eventually became the widespread industry we know today, but it started really kind of in medieval times. They would package these tours to the Holy Land. These were led by Venetian merchants who had control over much of the Mediterranean, and they would put these tours together to Europe. Today it is said that travel alone for pilgrimages could be in the ballpark of $8 billion with a B uh, each year, and that figure may be even a little low in our time. Many of these trips center around visiting the icons of popular uh, saints, in the early 2001 destination, San Giovanni in Italy, which is the pilgrimage site of Padre Pio, the saint, was reported to have brought the town $56.8 million in revenue. And it isn't just the travel and the access to these sites alone. It's also paying for the hostels and paying for restaurants and art and books literature, that sort of thing, this literally sustains the local economy. When I consider all that is on the line for destinations like San Giovanni, I cannot help but wonder about a curious correlation between this revenue that's being generated 
and the teaching about uh, people's spiritual identity. A common thread seems to be a doctrine, I feel, which is called original sin. This is a core belief of the Roman Catholic Church. It's also a core belief in many Protestant denominations, Christian denominations that follow this Calvinistic influence. You see, in this gospel, it begins with a place of humanity's depraved condition. There is a major problem that needs to be fixed. And this problem lies at the very core of humanity. In other words, we are the problem. And I don't know if you've ever been told you are a problem, but there's some major dysfunction that can happen on the inside. The doctrine of original sin was actually introduced by St. Augustine in the 3rd and 4th century and makes the claim that everyone is born marred and damaged and wretched. In a way, it says that we are born defective. 17th century author and hellfire and brimstone preacher Joseph Allein says, God finds nothing in man to turn his heart, but enough to turn his stomach. That sounds wonderful, isn't it? Happy good news. And many of us don't bat an eye. I know I haven't for the longest time when we sing that good hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That sounds beautiful. That saved a wretch like me. And all of a sudden it starts to feel pretty, like not such good news anymore. Quickly into that beautiful hymn. Can you imagine seeing someone you love as a wretch? I know I can't. And then, of course, there's Martin Luther, the famous German reformer who preached that humans are depraved not only to their very core, but to such a degree that nothing that we ever do can change that. He said, inherited sin in a man is like his beard. Though shaved off today so that the man is very smooth, it grows back by tomorrow morning. So all of this is a picture of really kind of this picture of shame and guilt. There's such a weight I feel when I think about the doctrine of original sin. Another phrase that you might have heard is total depravity. You're not only imperfect on the inside, but to such a total degree. Pastor Charles has spent a few weeks uh, telling us how this kind of mindset can lead to really skewed ideas of God killing Jesus so that this problem is corrected. And this does not sound like good news. Even psychologists tell us that when you live with such an identity, there's a lot of damage that is done on the inside that is really hard to undo. And if this is the position you hold, as many do, then that you are wretched and you turn God's stomach at just the thought of you, it now makes complete sense why millions will flock to shrines and sites just to make this far-off God feel a little closer. And there's certainly great incentive for the church. If it continues to preach this kind of belief, then it keeps control on the good news to dish it out to anyone needing to feel that kind of insurance. And you can hear in the tone of my voice that I don't believe this kind of belief is the true good news of the gospel. This morning, I want us to rediscover how the Bible is clear that we are birthed into favor, into blessing and goodness, not original sin, but original blessing. So I want you to just uh, turn with me. 
you have a Bible, do that. If not, it'll be up here. In Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the creation story, we pick up in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything he has made and indeed it was very good. There are three Hebrew words from this passage I want to single out for the remainder of this time. So I want you to just put your thinking cap on. I may even ask you to repeat the word so it's in your mouth as it is in mine. But what we are getting here from the, one of the oldest chapters in our sacred text is this creation story that is laying out a foundation of goodness that even when a man will eventually fall in chapter 2, it cannot undo this foundation of blessing and goodness. We read that humankind is created in God's image. That word image we might have heard before in the Latin phrase, imago dei, image of God. Have you heard that one before? I know some churches even take their name of that. It's a beautiful phrase. In the original Hebrew word, in the original Hebrew, it's the word uh, salem. Say that with me, salem. Salem. <laughs> I feel like I'm a choir director again. No, that's not what I said. Say what I say. I sang this. You sing it back just as you heard it. But what does it mean to be in the image of God? Salem Elohim. It has nothing to do with the way we look, our physical appearance. When I was a younger person, I used to think that way, that that must mean that God looks like us. So in my praying, that's what I would envision. I think it also, you know, makes sense to me that it never really bothered me when I saw God depicted that way in art because I just assume, okay, God's a white male. So, hey, I am, so is God. But here, the image really carries a connotation of being in close representation of the actual thing in regard to attributes and resembling uh, the attributes of God. It's as if the text is saying all that God is, God's goodness, love, forgiveness, and peace, we are to be that but in human form, in flesh form. The word here is not the same word, but it is echoed in the New Testament in Colossians when it says of Christ that Christ is the image of the invisible God, literally God in flesh. So if we aren't too sure about what this Imago Dei, this Salem image of God looks like for us, we can look to Christ. 
If Jesus mirrored God on earth as the blessed son, then living like Jesus lived was living into our identity as image bearers of the divine. So you are Salem, the walking bones and flesh of the invisible God. And that's good news. Why? Because God is good and God created us with that same kind of substance of goodness. But you can represent something and still remain separate from them. So the New Testament goes even further. Not only do we bear the image of God, the Bible says that we exist in God. And that, prepos that prep uh, preposition, that's the word, is the key, I feel like, in God. In Acts chapter 17, it says that in God we live, move, and have our being. And we hear this also when Jesus told his disciples, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, in John 14, 20. So that formula is telling, if we believe the words of Jesus, and that means you and I, all that we are, exists within God, not separate from, not to the side of, in God. Some say it this way, God is very existence itself. This reminds me of a modern-day parable. There are two fish swimming in the sea, and past, uh, coming toward them is a turtle who swims past them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two fish continue to swim along when one eventually says to the other, What is water? I don't know if you've heard that one before. That's what the parable that came to mind when I think about this. See, when you're a fish, water isn't something you talk about. It's synonymous with reality itself. And I believe that's the way it is with us. When we understand that we are in God, it doesn't make sense to try and get to God as if God needed to be accessed or brought closer. You can see how this understanding might change the way you look at the world. If you believe that everything that exists is in God, then you might act differently to those around you. You might even treat the earth itself a little differently. Maybe it's not so much just a temporary home trying to get to that great pie in the sky, but the actual living sanctuary of God here on earth. Another Hebrew word from Genesis 1 is the word tov, which means good. Say that with me, tov, tov. That's an easier one. The text says that on days 3 through 6, God stood back and saw that all that was created was good, tov. And it's a word that actually means something more along the lines of unity and harmony in terms of relationship. God saw that all things were in beautiful harmony with each other and with its creator. And this is symbolized by the garden itself. Everything was in right relationship with each other, and we often say it was perfect. This points to a starting place of union and not division. We cannot miss, though, on day six, the text says that God creates humankind, and it was not just tov, it was tov me'od. Say that with me. Tov me'od, which means very good. This speaks of abundance and almost in kind of an emphatic way. It was radically, overwhelmingly unified such that the sum is greater than its parts. You and I are tov me'od. 
very good. That's good news. We know that later in the Bible, humankind loses sight of this identity. The foundation, though, I still believe is there. It's just being covered over by layers of striving to measure up and earning our worth and trying to access this perceived distant God. In fact, you could say that all of life really is a journey of returning to this inner goodness, of leaving the temporary home that we set up east of Eden and coming back to the garden. That's really kind of the journey of life. Genesis 1, I believe, is our spiritual DNA test. And so far, the way I see it, we are passing with flying colors. We are Salem Elohim, the image of God, and we are Tov Me'od. We are born very good. But I want to close with one more Hebrew word from this creation story that is directly tied to our image as uh, image bearers of God. It's back in verse 27 of chapter 1. We read, So God created humankind in his image. In the image, image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. You see in verse 27, we're created in, as image bearers of God, but in the same breath, almost without missing a beat, it says that we are to have dominion over creation. We have heard that many times before. That word dominion has often been interpreted to mean mastery and submission, to rule over something much like a king dominates his territory. I feel like over the years it's been kind of a word of permission as the big dog that is ruling over everything we can do with the world however we choose. And we've seen how that has worked out. But we miss God's message if we don't read here the original Hebrew, original Hebrew word for dominion, which is rada. Say rada. Rada means something more like steward, to steward the earth. Probably closer to something like to serve and protect the earth. This call to stewardship is echoed in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve are placed in the garden to work it and to care for it. That's the language used there. So in that sense, we rada creation. We care for it. We protect it. Our identity as image bearers cannot be separated from this responsibility to rada the earth. I hope you hear this morning in these words this rooted worth from the very act of creation itself. These words, tov and salem, are words of promise and speak to our DNA of blessing. I do want to call up the worship team as I kind of close this morning and we do a little more singing. A couple years ago, a story came out about a man from Maryland who made a very interesting and surprising discovery. He had taken over the search into his family's history after his dad passed away. And one day after doing some research through Ancestry.com, he received an email with a subject line that says, Royal DNA. Come to find out this man was a prince of a small West African country of Benin. So it didn't take him long to want to jump on a plane and visit this country, Benin, 
in which he was greeted as royalty, they strung up banners for, them, for him, and they gave him a parade, and they celebrated with a big festival. I feel like some of us carry around the weight of shame and guilt from this gospel of unworthiness, depravity, and inherited wretchedness. But all the while, you carry within you the DNA of royalty. And like the story of the prodigal son, God stands ready to throw a robe around you and place a ring around your finger and call everyone together to give you a giant celebration just because you and I are in God. That's our DNA. That's our line, our family line. I do have to admit that near the top of my bucket list has been to make a trip to the Holy Land. I haven't done it. Maybe you have. But I've always wanted to do it. I, I want to see those sites that I've read about for so many years. But I do have to say that it's not because I want to undo some kind of original sin or to appease God or to get closer to God even. It's because I love history and I love travel. And if there's work to do, it's simply awakening to the reality in which we all live, move, and have our being. And that is that we are in God. We are made Salem Elohim in the image of God. And because we are in God, we are Tov Meod. We are very good. As image bearers, we have a responsibility, though, to radar the earth, to care for it, to protect it, to heal it, to care and to, to serve it. It's my prayer that um, that, that would be so that we would move forward in that responsibility. So I hope you take away with you these words of promise and blessing that speak life. I think that's what this creation story is trying to speak to us this morning. I want us to close in prayer. Creator God, help us to awaken to this identity you have given us at the beginning of time. And all other attempts to say that we are otherwise are not from you. As bearers of your image, we move forward into hope, but also into our responsibility to rada the earth, because that's what it means to be in your image. And call us forth for that purpose. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.